Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Fatal drug overdoses have been on the rise, driven by powerful synthetic opioids like fentanyl. This is a problem that has reached every corner of our communities. On today's show, we explore the growing threat of fentanyl across the Mountain West. And we learn what happened when residents of a Fort Collins mobile home park tried to buy it when it went up for sale. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Enhanced federal unemployment benefits that were put in place during the pandemic came to an end over the weekend. Roughly 107,000 Coloradans will lose their eligibility, according to state labor officials, and about 30,000 will no longer receive an extra $300 per week. Tamara Chung has been reporting on this for the Colorado Sun. She joins us now to talk about what the end of these benefits will mean for Coloradans. Tamara, thanks so much for talking with us. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Let's start by talking about what these unemployment benefits were intended for in the first place. What was the goal when they were implemented? So if you remember back when everything started shutting down, that meant a lot of businesses stopped. You know, they they closed down and they weren't making any money. So they either had to lay off employees or, um, or pay, you know, their employees would get unemployment benefits. So, so that's all fine and good when, you know, people in the regular, you know, in, in the old days, if you lost your job, you got unemployment benefits because your employer paid, paid for some of them. But there's a whole group of people who didn't work for employers. And this was the pandemic unemployment assistance um, funding that paid extra benefits to gig workers, people who were self-employed. And essentially they had to stop working too, you know, Uber drivers stopped. Um, So some of the federal benefits helped out those folks as well. And of course, the idea behind these benefits was to give unemployed people a bit of security and, you know, a bit of, you know, extra financial help while they search for jobs. What kind of jobs are open in Colorado now and are people taking them? There are a lot of jobs available. So the state has its own job board. It's called it's at connectingcolorado.com. And I think on Friday there were over 100,000, maybe even 125,000 job postings. So there's a lot of jobs out there. And as of um, the weekend, there were probably, you know, 100,000 people in Colorado who were losing all of their federal benefits. So some people like to say, well, there's jobs for everyone. But you have to remember, it's it's still not that easy to get a job. Um, You know, you have to have maybe certain skill sets to be a nurse's assistant or even a construction worker. So it's not so easy to say, well, there's that many jobs out there. and, And so everyone should be taken care of. No, you recently reported that as of August 21st, there were still more than 30,000 Coloradans collecting regular unemployment. Two years ago in 2019, the average number of people on unemployment each week was around 18,600. So what does that tell us about the state of the recovery here in Colorado? That means unemployment is still pretty high. 
here in Colorado. And those people haven't been able, you know, those people would have been eligible for benefits, you know, regardless of the pandemic because they lost their jobs and they were working for an employer. But, you know, there are different reasons for, you know, why people are still on unemployment. And, you know, for a lot of them, it's, you know, they're not finding the right job or maybe they have health concerns. Um, and, you know, so so there's the thing is, there's if there's 30,000 people still on regular unemployment, we're not we're not recovered yet. Now, President Biden decided not to push for any kind of extension of the federal unemployment assistance, uh, but he did encourage states that are still struggling to fill in the gaps using federal aid money. Uh, This would be to continue offering extra benefits to residents who are still searching for work. Is that something that we're likely to see here in Colorado? Unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. I I did check with Governor Jared Polis's office about this because this was left up to the states. And his response to to me was that there are a lot of jobs out there and the weekly unemployment, the new unemployment claims continues to go down, which is true. I mean, there's still 30,000 people on regular unemployment, but apparently that, you know, there was a decision made and it doesn't look like the governor is going to do anything to use existing federal funds to supplement unemployment for um, those still unemployed. Well, Tamara, just briefly, what happens next? I mean, is this the end for everyone who might need these benefits? Unfortunately, this is the end. It Saturday was the last day of eligibility. So there are... Um, Lots of folks who lost benefits and a lot of folks who lost the extra $300 a week. But, um, and, and they're no longer eligible moving forward. But for some folks, you know, maybe you didn't get all the weeks you were owed. And maybe you, you requested a back payment or um, realized that you were eligible for past weeks. You can actually still go to the Department of of labor and request those. And um, the state must accept these PUA applications, new PUA applications, by the way, for 30 days after this program ends. So you've got that, um, those folks who may still qualify for some payments. Um, But, you know, beyond unemployment, there's also housing assistance. So there's a huge program in Colorado where if you're still unable to pay your rent because of Maybe uh, you lost a job or your income challenged because of the pandemic and COVID. You may qualify for getting up to 15 months of your rent paid. Um, there, there's definitely programs out there. So it's not just unemployment. So if you're struggling, you should make sure you look for all these other options. Tamara Chung covers business and the economy for the Colorado Sun. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Erin. COVID-19 isn't the only epidemic the U.S. is facing. Fatal drug overdoses are skyrocketing, driven by synthetic opioids like fentanyl, which is 80 to 100 times stronger than morphine. Denver had 159 deaths related to the drug in 2020. And recently, health officials in Boulder found fentanyl in counterfeit pills made to look like oxycodone and Xanax. Madeline Beck has been looking into the issue of fentanyl for KUNC. Here is the first of a three-part series about the problem and potential solutions. It was 2018, 
Ashley Romero was 32. She was living in Grand Junction, Colorado, a smaller community known for mountain bike tourism, public land access, and beautiful rocky terrain. She had an eight-year-old son and a boyfriend. She was dating someone, and he uh, gave her a half of a little blue pill. Andrea Thomas is her mother. She says it looked like a Percocet. The pill was actually poisoned with fentanyl, or laced with fentanyl, and she died almost instantly. Her boyfriend took the other half, also nearly died, and was revived, but he killed himself shortly after. These pills, also called Mexican Oxy, Blue Mexis, or Blues, contain the man-made opioid fentanyl. It's similar to morphine, but can be a hundred times stronger. It can make you high, or if you have too much, stop your heart. You hear of overdoses all the time, but the difference between what happened to my daughter and all of those stories that I heard about overdose before is that she didn't overdose. She was poisoned. Thomas started the Voices for Awareness Foundation to help get out the word about these counterfeit pills, but still finds plenty of people who don't know. I think that we need to be talking about this everywhere. Um, I think that it should be in the schools. I think going into college. And she says we need action now. Fentanyl and similar synthetic opioids are driving increasing overdose deaths. CDC estimates show Colorado had a 133% increase in overdose deaths from synthetic opioids last year. Other Mountain West states have seen similar increases. So how do these fentanyl pills get here? Steve Katecki is with the Drug Enforcement Administration's Denver office. He explains that fentanyl and fentanyl-related substances often start with precursor chemicals in China that get shipped to Mexico. And then down in Mexico, it's manufactured in a, in a garage or a warehouse or, you know, something else down there by the cartels is manufactured and then smuggled up through the southwest border. Mexican cartels like fentanyl because it's cheap and powerful, but it's hard to mix in a way that's safe. An amount similar to a few grains of sand can be enough to kill. Doctors use it on patients every day, but they have instruments to give exact doses. Kateki's wife had it after giving birth. Fentanyl is great for pain management, um, you know, and it has helped a lot of people get through some really rough times. But the DEA says about a quarter of fentanyl pills they seized had enough of the substance to kill. And when I say fentanyl, I mean an umbrella of drugs, which includes carfentanyl, something used in elephant tranquilizers. It can stop your heart in seconds. I've been telling people it's like playing Russian roulette with a four-chamber revolver. Cartels are pressing the fentanyl into pills that look like Oxycontin and Percocet. And that's for a reason. The U.S. cracked down on opioid prescriptions, but many people still want them. And Kateki says the amount of fentanyl coming over the border has doubled every year for the last four years. Now, it's everywhere. This is a problem that has reached every corner of our communities. Jess Stennett is a sergeant with the Idaho State Police. He's in Kootenai County in North Idaho, which has about 170,000 people, the city of Coeur d'Alene, and plenty of forest. Over eight days this summer, that county had five unrelated overdose deaths, all suspected to have been fentanyl-related. It's a problem that we have to combat. We can't just turn a blind eye to it. That problem includes some people using painkillers to feel better or to simply not feel sick anymore. And kids experiment with these drugs, too. We've had as young as 15-year-olds here overdose. The availability of it is frightening. 
Stanit hopes people understand that if they didn't get a pill from a pharmacist, it could be their last. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Madeline Beck. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Most of us will never forget the image of twisted piles of steel following the collapse of the World Trade Center towers in New York. In the months following the September 11th attacks, several of those steel beams were sent to the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and in Boulder, Colorado, for testing to better understand why the towers came down. In 2002, not long before the first anniversary of 9-11, KUNC's Brian Larson visited NIST in Boulder and filed this report. Here's what I'm looking for. This is a map of the north face of World Trade Center 1. Fred Fickett is the chief in the Materials Reliability Division at the National Institute of Standards and Technology Lab in Boulder. He's highlighting pieces of steel the lab is testing from the World Trade Center. The colored pieces are pieces of steel which we have at NIST. It's hard not to focus on the gaping hole caused by the impact of American Airlines Flight 11, which is strikingly visible in between the 94th and 98th floors. So you see it's some distance off from where the actual impact, and above it, these are the floor numbers. The work is part of a two-year, $16 million effort by NIST to determine why the steel failed in Trade Center Buildings 1, 2, and 7, and to make recommendations for the future safety of skyscrapers. Tom Seward is a metallurgist and one of four people analyzing what are remarkably straight pieces of steel given their circumstance. But he's quick to point out an inconsistency with the map we're looking at. The drawing is a sort of a design of the structure and has all the columns in their original shape. Obviously, things are incredibly distorted and our specimens are some of the best. You can only imagine how distorted many of these other ones are. They're literally twisted and bent, crumpled in many different ways. This is the, the high bay area where we have, as you can see, a very large number of machines for determining mechanical properties of materials. 100 steel beams are already at NIST headquarters in Gaithersburg, Maryland, where the majority of testing is taking place. But in June, three three-foot-long sections of steel were delivered to the High Bay area of building number two at the Boulder facility. The pieces that you're seeing over here, they're, they're rather small pieces now, uh, were sent to us, small but they're not light, were sent to us several months ago, and they were longer and we have cut them up in our work to look at what essentially unimpacted steel looks like, sort of baseline. Because we the trade tower steel was exposed to incredible amounts of heat and high rates of stress and strain before the collapse, much of the lab's work involves tensile testing, which is heating, stretching, and pulling the steel apart to see when it loses its strength. We put a specimen inside this furnace control the temperature, control the loading rate, and then run one test at a fixed condition. We then change the load, change the temperature, and make a database or a, a matrix of test conditions so that we understand how that one steel behaves over different temperatures and different load rates. What happens to this material 
after it's tested, where does it go? <laughs> we don't know. We don't we, know. We don't know what the final disposition is going to be. That's so far in the future, we're not considering it at all now. Yeah, our approach to it is to very carefully catalog each sample. We have a, a whole database that has not only the dimensions of the sample and how it's marked and descriptions of the tests that were performed. So this will be one of the most carefully documented studies uh, that's been done in a very long time. When this phase of testing is complete, the emphasis will then shift to testing steel that was exposed to the impact and burning jet fuel in order to make a comparison. The lab has already taken measurements on much of the steel that was delivered in June. Last week, two new columns, one about 10 feet long and the other roughly 15 feet in length, again, only slightly twisted, arrived at the High Bay area. They rest on the floor next to a large garage door. With the one-year anniversary of September 11th approaching, it's eerie to look at the columns knowing where they came from and why they're here. Tom Seward refers to them as sacred material, but he's hesitant to go any deeper. As engineers and scientists, I think you try and keep emotion out of your activity. You try and be very careful about it, but it, it does strike home to you that this is a very important uh, project and we need to be very careful about how we do it and collect data that's very useful and important. As a manager of engineers and scientists, I can have some emotion. But when this happened, a whole lot of the staff who possessed the expertise and the capability to do this work, Tom among them, showed up at my door and said, we really have got to get involved in this, you know. We've got the equipment, we've got the expertise, we really, really should be doing something. And so I, it's, that's kind of emotional for a scientist to do that. The NIST labs in Gaithersburg and Boulder will take the time to observe moments of silence next Wednesday. But it's quite likely that testing on the World Trade Center steel will not be so quiet. For KUNC, I'm Brian Larson. Back in May, Hickory Village Mobile Home Park in Fort Collins went up for sale, and residents there wanted to buy it, seeking to become a resident-owned community, or ROC. This would allow the residents to have more say with matters like rent, utilities, and maintenance. But after submitting and then resubmitting an offer, negotiations ultimately fell through. Now a private real estate investment firm called Haven Park Communities is in line to acquire the park for its offer of $23 million. According to a recent report from Manufactured Housing Action, a national group of manufactured home residents who advocate for affordable and quality housing, Haven Park has a history of pricing out its residents. In the last few years, Haven Park reportedly increased rent by over 65% in parks in Montana and Iowa just months after purchasing them. And in multiple cases, the report says Haven Park has required residents to pay for utilities such as water, sewage, and trash, which is traditionally paid for by park owners. Andy Cadlick is the program director for Thistle Rock, a nonprofit organization that helps mobile home parks become resident-owned communities. He joins us now to talk about resident-owned communities, changes in affordable housing options, and what happened in the case of Hickory Village. Hi, Andy. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Hi, Erin. Great to be here. First off, for people who have never lived in a mobile home park, what are some of the issues that residents might find themselves running into that would motivate them to want to buy the park themselves? 
Manufactured housing parks or mobile home parks are a unique form of housing in our country. For those that aren't familiar, typically um, ownership in a mobile home park consists of one individual or landlord owning the land and then residents or homeowners owning the homes that sit, at, sit on top of the land. And so residents pay a monthly lot rent that will typically go towards infrastructure, utility expenses and things like that, but they really don't have any control over decisions or rules in the parks. And so um, a lot of concerns that come up with, from residents are really related to stability and control and power. I think these days, a lot of mobile home parks in these communities are not as mobile as, as they typically may seem. Um, they cannot be moved they're aging, and if they were able to move them, the costs of doing something like that are just astronomical and aren't really economical for those individuals. And so the opportunity to purchase the land underneath them really gives residents uh, quite a few benefits, most importantly, stability in their housing and stability in where they live. If they own the land, it will never be sold or redeveloped. Um, it gives them control over community rules, community regulations, as well as ensuring that infrastructure concerns are taken care of, and most importantly, just gives them that power and control over their self-determination. Now, earlier this summer, as we mentioned, residents of Hickory Village in Fort Collins submitted an offer of intent to buy their own mobile home park, but ultimately it didn't work out. What happened? Yeah, you know, so the, the residents of Hickory Village uh, were noticed that their park was for sale under a new state law that was enacted last summer called Opportunity to Purchase. So this law um, requires that owners give notice to all residents in the community if they intend to sell their park or accept a final offer. Um, it gives the residents 90 days to essentially organize and secure financing to be able to purchase their park. We were informed soon after when Hickory Village was for sale and we immediately started working with the community to analyze the offer and the opportunity. But, you know, it's a lot to do within 90 days. You know, we need to come into a community help them understand a cooperative ownership model, get them to be organized as well as meet all the requirements under the law to have a certain majority in favor of purchasing, give them an idea of financing, get them under contract, have them be a competitive commercial buyer by going through the appropriate due diligence so that they can receive a binding commitment of financing under a new law that we're still really trying to work through and understand. And so um, with Hickory, it was difficult. I think we ran into some, some challenges with the new law with uncertainty over um, responsibilities on the owner side and the resident side to give appropriate notice. Then go over time, the residents got a little bit tired and, and stressed out over the process and just unfortunately weren't able to get things together. Earlier this year, Thistle Rock did help some other mobile home parks to become ROCs, including ones in Durango and Boulder. I'm wondering what worked there that maybe didn't work at Hickory Village? Yeah, Animus View Co-op in Durango and San Susi Co-op in Boulder did purchase this summer. Um, they were both purchased under this opportunity to purchase legislation. And I think what was really successful there was a lot of immediate engagement and support from the residents, as well as prior education and understanding of our model. Both communities were familiar with ROC and what they offer in terms of resident ownership. And so I think that was really helpful in moving the process along. And these are also two communities that live in very high housing cost areas. If you live in Boulder or you live in Durango, you're well understood as to the uh, limited housing stock and how expensive it is to live there. And so they truly saw that opportunity as a way to preserve their park and maintain some control and ownership over their housing. Back when our producer spoke with residents at Hickory Village in Fort Collins, some were concerned that if they weren't able to buy the park, they wouldn't be able to afford to live there anymore, weren't sure where else that they would go. Um, I imagine there's some disappointment around what happened. Um, do you know what might happen to these residents? 
You know, I really don't. It's, you know, the cost of housing is increasing across uh, across the country and in, in the front range of, of Colorado, there's a, a huge, you know, influx of people moving here and just the cost of living is going up and up and up. And as you mentioned, Haven Park Capital, the buyer in question are the ones that we believe are going to purchase the park. Um, you know, we, we can't make any assumptions or guarantees over what may happen. And so it's difficult in these situations where you don't know, you know, and I think it's it's understood that a big, you know, organization that isn't based in your state is going to come and purchase your park. It's reasonable to have some anxiety and stress over that situation. But really, you know, we we're not sure what can be done about that. Lastly, you mentioned the housing affordability crisis across Colorado. How do you see mobile homes and manufactured homes fitting into the picture of of housing in Colorado? Yeah, absolutely. I think not a lot of people know that manufactured housing parks in Colorado are a huge source of um, affordable housing. Over 900 communities across the state housing hundreds of thousands of Coloradans. This housing exists. It's here in the state and it's not going to go away anytime soon. And so our opportunity to really shift that uh, balance of power and control to the residents in these parks are a great opportunity to create stable housing, especially in areas of the state where there is limited housing stock and not a lot of opportunities if you lose your home or if a developer wants to come in and change the use of that land. And so I really do feel like it's an opportunity that we have to help these residents and give them power and control over their housing and really create stability for the future. Andy Cadlick is Program Director for Thistle Rock. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll speak to one of a handful of Colorado firefighters who started a memorial stair climb 17 years ago as a way to honor the firefighters who died responding to the September 11th attacks at the World Trade Center. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.